not every single one is going to work out perfectly, whether it's the company is in a match, the culture is in a match, the timing is off because there's family circumstances that are far reaching. There's a lot of different things. But in every experience, you give it everything you've got, you learn from it, you grow from it, and you have to have trust and faith that there's a reason that you go through this experience that will serve you down the road. And that's the most important lesson of all, that there is no experience that's a bad experience. There is only a bad experience if you didn't learn, if you didn't grow, and you didn't expand your ability to confront problems, dangers, pain, and then become more because of it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a show that candidly explores how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you so much. There's not many people that can get me into a blazer to right. come see you out of the office and do a podcast. So I'm very, very grateful. Oh, thank you very much. Where are you from? I'm from here. I'm from Los Altos. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was saying to the team, I so I used to work at Palo Alto Networks and I haven't uh-huh. come to Santa Clara since then. It's kind of a funky city. Yeah, it's no, kinda, it is. It's definitely different. Yeah, there's like <laughs> there's amusement parks and buildings and anyway. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be with you, Jubin. So let's rock and roll. Okay, let's do it. So, dude, I got to ask, one of the things that I noticed about you in the Bill McDermott files, okay, and I've watched a lot of videos on you, uh-huh. is that you fist pump. You mm-hmm. fist pump before or after an interview because you're so fired up. Does that just come natural to you? Like, I, I was watching, a, I think it was a Duke University talk that you gave, and your son was in the audience in the corner. And at the end of the talk, you looked at him and you just gave a little fist pump because yeah. you were just so fired up. Does that just come naturally for you? Born with passion and, <laughs> and you let it rip. It just comes out of you. Exactly. That's unbelievable. That's <laughs> exactly. Un- that yeah. is unbelievable. Well, look, there's a funny series of things that kind of happened as I was learning about you. The first was I learned all about your sandwich shop, the right. delicatessen. On my LinkedIn, until I had an actual job, I was a sandwich artisan at Subway. Uh-huh. And after Subway, I actually got fired. I didn't end up buying the Subway like you bought the sandwich shop. And then I went to a grocery store and I bagged groceries. And so as I was learning more about your story, it was really inspiring. It was really cool to see. Does it get old telling the story? Like when you tell the story of Bill growing up and then the way that those inputs have fed into what you are today, does that get tiresome or do you still enjoy doing it? I think I find a little nuance in every story that brings a different piece of my life's journey to the conversation. I don't get tired of it because it's kind of amazing and it's a wonderful, wonderful journey. So I love talking about it. Your mother, Kathleen, right? Yeah. You were super close to her. Yes. When you were growing up, what did your mom and dad, what did you guys talk about at the dinner table? Would it be more them talking? Would it be you and your siblings talking? Like, what was the dynamic of you growing up at the dinner table? Well, I'm the oldest of four kids. And as the oldest, I think I had a unique seat at the table because my mom and dad were so young. My mom had me when she was 18 and my dad was only 21. So I think it would be fair to say, depending on what age it was, I was at the table in more listening mode early on. And probably by, you know, at the time I was a teenager, I might have been doing some of the talking too. (laughs) (laughs) My team and I searched long and hard for 
the delicatessen. Yeah. There's not many records of this, but does this look right in terms of the location of where it was? No. Where was it? It was on the corner of South Bayview Avenue and Merrick Road. Do you ever go back there? I do. I have been back there usually once a year. I'll go uh, you know, to Long Island, and when I'm in Long Island, I'll take a trip and just pass it. It is not what it used to be. It is now a delicatessen sort of convenience store in a gas station, but it doesn't look anything like the building I had. It's just like a little tiny one now. Can you tell the audience the significance of that delicatessen to you? Yeah, I mean, it was very special in the sense that initially I was trading in three part-time jobs to have one consolidated job where I could put all my hours together, go to school and play sports in high school. And the beauty of the delicatessen was I got as many hours as I wanted. And I didn't have to work for the town of Amityville, go to the supermarket at Finest, or work the tables at Amato's Italian restaurant anymore. I could dedicate everything to one job and get as many hours as I wanted. And that was special because I wanted to be somebody and I needed the job. I needed the work. Buying it was super unique because it was the first time that I was put in a situation where I had to find a way. I had to lead and being placed in between two large competitors, one finest supermarket and the other 7-Eleven was not an easy thing for the small neighborhood delicatessen business to survive. And the way I went about it was pretty simple. It was just like the little one has to do what the big one is either structurally unable to do because of all the bureaucracy in big companies or unwilling to do because they don't hustle as much as a little business person has to. So I always found my sweet spot doing the things that they didn't do. Being as close to your family as you are, did you ever find yourself thinking, maybe I won't leave Long Island? Did that consideration even come up for you? No, I always knew that Long Island was a great place to grow up. And I also at the same time knew it was a place I had to get out of to be what I wanted to be in this world. So it never entered my mind that I would have a chain of delicatessens across Long Island or something. My dream was always to go into the Big Apple, New York City, and be in a corporate world and uh, climb the ladder of the big companies and be somebody in a big company. Where you started being somebody at a big company was at Xerox. Is that right? It was Xerox. You know, I'll never forget wrapping up the delicatessen with the best lesson of all, which is the business that you're in has to constantly be reinvented and transformed. So we built a video game room on the delicatessen where I could take Asteroids and Pac-Man and all these cool games and get the kids to walk past 7-Eleven into my store. And what was really crazy about the whole thing, I'm not sure I would have ever gotten them there if I didn't go down and ask them why they were waiting in a long line to get into 7-Eleven and they were only going in four at a time when there was 40 online. And, you know, one of the young people said, they think we're going to take things. And I said, well, you know, come down to my store. I'll let you in 40 at a time. I have a good time, play video games and so forth. And at the end of a long day, one of the young folks said to me, Bill, when we want to have good food, be treated with respect and play video games, we go to your store. And when we want to steal stuff, we go to 7-Eleven. <laughs> and that was the moment I knew that, you can get anything in this whole wide world you want. 
as long as you give other people enough dignity and respect and show them the love. And when you do that, they'll give it back to you tenfold. And they always did. But I wanted to go into New York City and I wanted to work for Xerox. You know, a funny thing was one of the customers who came into that delicatessen was always on his way to catch the Long Island Railroad into New York City. And he would tell me about his job at Xerox and so forth. And I ended up getting an interview there and a couple of other companies just by doing my own direct mail campaign to these big companies. The Xerox job story is pretty interesting and exciting one if you'd like to hear about Please, it. Please, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was living in Long Island at the time, you know, my mom and dad's house took on quite a bit of water every time there was a northeast storm. And that particular day, I had my $99 suit that I charged at the mall. And I was walking down the stairs to get to the car to go to the railroad. And there was about four feet of water in the house. So my brother basically carried me on his shoulder to the street to pour me into my dad's car so I wouldn't get my suit wet. And my dad takes me to the railroad and he said, hey, Bill, I wish you the best today and all this. And I said, hey, dad, I guarantee you I'm coming home tonight with my employee badge in my pocket. And my father said, hey, Bill, don't put all that pressure on yourself. You're a good guy. Just do the best you can. I said, I guarantee it. And I think the real lesson in guaranteeing it is realizing that you're a serious person and you're going on a mission with serious intent. So I went up the escalator, got on the line, railroad, read the annual report on this company reinventing itself on total quality management and really relaunching the company with the CEO that had a vision. His name was David Kearns. By the time I got off the train, I was already preparing in my mind to be the next David Kearns. Now, that didn't mean I didn't have to get the sales job. I did. I get to top of the sixes. And that was the hot building in Manhattan at the time where the hiring center was. And I look around the room at the hiring center and, you know, I'm looking at this audience of young people, women and men, very talented, very, very sharp. And the room was packed and they were all interviewing for jobs. I said, man, I might have overshot it a little bit with my father. I mean, there's a heck of an audience here, you know, these guys look pretty talented. And then something happened. There was that moment where it's like, do you panic? You might have overstated your capability. You're going against tremendous competition. I mean, these people are really talented and gifted. So I just did what I always do. I had 500 people come into that delicatessen on a regular basis, and I talked to each one of them. So I just decided I'm going to talk to each one of these folks and see what they're all about. You know, hey, what are you in here for? How are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And I would get answers like, well, you know, I'm playing the field. I'm interviewing here. I'm interviewing at IBM. I'm interviewing at Morgan Stanley. And that's when I got my superpower because I knew I had something they didn't have. And that was I wanted it so much more than they did. And that became my superpower. And I had no doubt when I went into my multiple interviews that that passion was going to carry me through the day because that was my superpower. And I realized that. And it's a little bit like the delicatessen. The little one has to do what the big one is either structurally unable to do or unwilling to do. And that will that's inside you, that passion that's inside you always shines through when you need it the most. Do you think that's your superpower still? When I have sat here and watched you, the superpowers that keep coming to my mind are this deep 
unwavering sense of self-belief that I've very rarely seen in someone. And in that self-belief, you have this way of flipping a situation into pure optimism like I've never seen before. And to me, it's astounding. I wonder, do you register it that way? Do you feel that? I just feel what I feel. I don't register it one way or the other. I'm just literally living my life. Has it always been that way? It's always been that way. I mean, I think... Like, you think it's taught? Like, you think your parents taught you that? Or do you think it's innate? I don't know 100%. I do think that my mom's unwavering optimism, you know, I saw her under the most challenging of circumstances, and she could always find the bright side of the situation and always convinced us, you know, no matter how bad this might seem at the moment, always remember... There's somebody around this world that has it a lot worse than you, and it's a lot worse than this moment, no matter how bad you might think this moment is. And that was structurally something that stayed with me. Totally. And that's in my DNA, so it's not like you got to think about it. It's just who you are. And then I think, you know, I just really respect so much. I can remember my father working the midnight shift at Con Edison, and I'd look out the window and see him going to work at 11.30 at night, scraping ice off of his windshield of his financed car to get to the job in Queens so he could work through the night in 10 degree temperatures in the manholes in New York City, keeping the lights on. And I'm like, that's grit, baby. That's what the real world's all about. So I just think that everything is just such a blessing, such a gift, such an opportunity. I never thought about losing because there's just so much to win for. Any moments that stand out growing up for you where your mom found slivers of optimism where most people wouldn't? There's so many. One that really does stand out is, you know, watching the house on fire while I'm standing next to my brother and my sister and she's got our arms around us and you see your house burning down and it's a pretty low moment. But I'll never forget my mother putting her arms around us and saying, this is actually a good thing because there's nothing inside of that house that's nearly as important as the things that are outside of that house, which is us. We're together. We're going to be fine. It's all rebuildable. And then I realized that, again, she captured lightning in a bottle because the big moment wasn't the house on fire. The big moment is we had each other. And then she went right to the solution. It's rebuildable. We'll build it back better. And I think that's the kind of optimism that it takes in a world that'll challenge you at every turn. And you got to have the grit to gut it out. I imagine you're a guy that most people count on. When you are this optimistic all the time, you have a lot of people counting on you at all times. I imagine your mother was probably in a similar boat where a lot of people could count on her. I was thinking, like, does that get tiring? Like, does it? <laughs> does the pressure of needing to be there for so many people all the time, obviously I think it's a privilege, but doesn't sometimes that get a little exhausting? Not if you need to be needed. I think that's part of it in your DNA, If you need to be needed and your passion is really to be the go-to person and you like being responsible and you believe that you're serving 
a greater purpose than just yourself because you actually get energy and you get passion and accomplishment and all the things that you're looking for out of life from other people and how they succeed and how they accomplish things and how they fight through things. Their story in many ways becomes an extension of your story. And that's a super cool way to go through the day. And I wouldn't want it any other way. Honestly, my opinion of my own energy level in terms of rating the tiredness, I'm much more likely to get tired if I'm watching a football game on a Sunday afternoon and there's nobody with me. I kind of get the energy off of other people and just being with other people. That's my charger station, you know? Yeah. One of the analogies that one of our CEOs, Parker Conrad of Rippling, used He said, Jubin, imagine business is like your favorite sports team and you love playing this sport, right? Like you're a basketball player, right? Imagine it's your championship basketball game every day. He's like, that's how I feel about working. It's that I'm playing my favorite sport every single day. And that really resonated with me. I don't know. I imagine you probably feel the same way. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, And I also think that depending on everyone's individual life journey, and everyone has an interesting journey, and most of them are very different from the other. But I really think about those early jobs, whether you were delivering newspapers, bussing tables, painting fences, working in a supermarket or running your own small business, pumping gas, all those experiences shaped you. And of all the things that I think have helped me in my life find me, the number one thing is work. And the value of the job and the work and the accomplishment from doing a good job and yes, also earning a living and being independent, including at a very young age. And I really feel sorry for people that don't see the love of work itself and the passion of the job itself and the chance to go in and do a good job and accomplish something and feel good about you because you are doing something meaningful. And people have asked me, what's your favorite job? And I loved them all. And I felt like I needed them all. And I was really lucky to have them. And that really made the difference. Because when I showed up, I was excited. I was so excited to walk in to Amato's Italian restaurant with my tuxedo, bussing tables, watching people have these beautiful meals and just thinking like, If I work hard enough, I'll sit at that table someday. Somebody will have white gloves and they'll serve me a spumoni. It's possible. And that's what it was. It wasn't that I was jealous of them. It was that I wanted the opportunity to have a seat at the table. And to get one, you had to work and you had to accomplish something and you had to strive for something. And all those some things are still a work in progress. I don't feel like I've arrived in anything yet. Every day is a chance to reprove yourself. Every day is a chance to reinvent your dream. Dreams are not stagnant. They're constantly on the move. And if you don't chase them, you'll never find them. You met your wife at work, right? Yes. From the get-go, has she understood what work means to you? A hundred percent. Like never been a question, has there? Never been a question because, and that's one of the real blessings about my marriage and my great partnership with Julie It's from the second that I saw her when she was waiting to be interviewed for the job. 
and she didn't only interview with this me. This is at Xerox. Is that Xerox? Yeah. She also interviewed with other individuals. I knew when I saw Julie, I was going to marry Julie. But it sounds like, oh, come on, man. How can you say that? I'm telling you, there was magic in the air. And what is amazing about our partnership is that from the beginning, she respected what I am and what I do, why I do it, how I do it, and for who I do it. Because the gifts that the world has given me, I try to give the world back and always be in service to other people. And that's what gives me so much life and so much energy. And she knows that. And she always knew me. And I think that's what was so cool because our personalities are so complementary. She wanted to be the person behind the man. And I wanted to be the person behind the woman because Julie does things that I could never do. And she likes to see me do things that she doesn't even want to do. For example, if we were at a beautiful dinner in our 20s, Julie didn't want to get up and give the toast to the room, and I did. You know, so we were always a team. We were always a partnership. We always had common goals and shared values and lots of love and lots of admiration and respect. But the main thing, I think, with great couples is that the enduring value that comes from the interdependence of mutual respect and admiration for what the other one has and how you want to help the other one be the best version of themselves. And we have both shared that interdependently now for what will be 32 years this coming April. 32 years. That's incredible. That's older than me. But what's really crazy is I feel like when I say 32 years, we must have met in fourth grade. (laughs) You know, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) You know, come on, man. You've had some pretty incredible challenges in your life that you're very open about. And I actually really appreciate that. Do those challenges put the role of work in your life into perspective? Well, which challenges? There's so many different ones, you know? <laughs> so like, I, like uh, even from a young age, like your brother, as an example, yeah. I think you lost him at a pretty young age, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a pretty meaningful thing to happen yeah. very early on that you have to cope with. And I think very early you realize what matters and what doesn't in the context of life. That's what I mean, that type of challenge. There's no question. The devastation of personal losses of people that you love are without question incomparable to any other type of challenge. So to take that on early and grow from that, learn from that, and have your deep faith and belief in the hereafter as an example is an incredible force in my life because in a certain sense, I love them all so completely. And I have dreams that, you know, we'll all dance again someday. But if you didn't have that faith, it's kind of like, and this is going to last how many years? And then it's going to be all over. So I've always tried to put it in perspective. Yeah. The way that I relate to work and my job, and my team is here and they're probably laughing right now because I'm kind of nuts about work. And I've designed my life (laughs) to work. I love working. And I think as I've been very introspective about why I love work, the work. It's because it's something that I can control very neatly. It's the highest correlation that I've ever seen in my life between inputs and outputs. And I learned that 
when I was making cold calls in my first job out of school. It's like if I make more cold calls, I make more money. I you know overachieve on my quota. And ever since then, I just learned that this is the one thing, the piece of Play-Doh that I have in my life that very little externally can control. And I felt like hearing about your story of going and getting the job at Xerox, you felt like that a little bit, knowing that if you brought that badge home to your dad that night, that you knew that your path was in some way in your hands. And I feel like that's a very empowering feeling. That's beautifully said, Jubin, because I can still remember, and this is the fascinating part about one's life's journey, there are certain moments that you never forget. And I'll never forget being at 9 West 57th on the 38th floor of what they called the Avon building back then, waiting in the demo room overlooking Central Park on a couch, sitting next to David and Michael, who was also interviewing for a job and is a friend of mine still to this day, by the way. Wow. I don't think I've ever had a chance to tell anybody that in this kind of setting. He just lost his mom, God rest her soul. And I went up to Joanne Siciliano, who was the receptionist, and I basically said to her, Joanne, I just want to let you know, I'm Bill McDermott, I'm here, and I'm not in any rush. I would just appreciate it if you could let Mr. Fullwood, Emerson Fullwood was the big boss, let him know that I'm waiting and I'll be here as long as he needs me to be. Literally, within a minute, I got an invite to go meet with Emerson. And i never forget looking over his shoulder at Central Park, going through the hearth of that doorway and having it hit me that I'm not here for a job interview. I'm here in a fight for my life because if I get this job, my dream job on this day, I will control my own destiny. I will be in control of my future. And I knew that it was my day and I knew that was my job and I wanted it. And I wanted it more than anything I wanted in the whole world at that particular moment in time. And that's how you gotta harness that passion and that will all into one bundle, not because you're making it up. It's gotta be who you are, and that's who I was. And I'll never forget sitting down with Emerson, having a really great conversation, and then at the end he said, hey Bill, uh, it's been a very interesting discussion. You're an interesting young man, and the HR department's gonna be in touch with you in the next couple of weeks. I guess uh, a lot of people have heard the HR department story, I basically just turned to him and said, Mr. Fullwood, I don't think you completely understand the situation, sir. And he kind of looks at me with this tilt as if to say, what's up with this kid, you know? And I said, um, I haven't broken a promise to my father in 21 years. And I guaranteed him I have my employee badge in my pocket tonight when I went back to Amityville, Long Island. It's incredible. And he looks at me and he basically said, after a few seconds pause, it's felt like in a minute, but it was probably 10 seconds. He said, Bill McDermott, as long as you haven't committed any crimes, you're hired. And I said, well, Mr. Fullwood, I certainly haven't committed any crimes. So you sure I'm hired? And he said, yeah, I'm sure. And I kind of bear hugged him a bit, probably moved him around a little bit and then left that office just on fire. And I go down the hall. I pass Joanne Siciliano. I get to the elevator. I go down 38 floors. I run 
to 6th Avenue and 57th Street where they had a bun and burger. And I started putting quarters in the phone. You know, back then you actually had to put quarters in a phone. Look it up in Wiki. It actually happened. <laughs> and um, my mom and dad get on the phone and uh, I said, look, I got good news. Break out the core bell. I got the job. And I just can't tell you how much it meant to me and still means to me to have had that opportunity. And, you know, Emerson Fullwood and I are great friends to this day. To this day. To this day. And to this day, I have a CEO event in New York every year. And Emerson and his lovely bride come to that event and partake in that each and every year. And we're friends for life. And I think that's another part of this unbelievable journey that I've been privileged to be on. It's make friends everywhere you go and make it last. So every relationship is an important relationship. Every friendship that you make along the way is what enriches your life beyond measure. And all the folks that have touched my life, whether it was Ann Mulcahy or Tom Dolan or Emerson Fold or the great Barry Rand, rest his soul, or Al Bird and so many others from my first corporate experience still are in my heart and in my life today. How old were you when you made that call to your parents? 21. You still feel that fire today, don't you? Oh, yes. I feel it even more so today. I think you're being very genuine when you say that. Oh, 100%. Because as you reflect on it, the gravity of the situation, you realize, looking back on it, was gigantic. And at the time, you're just doing what you do. You're in the moment. You're living it. But when you look back on it, it's like all of this other stuff may not have happened, if not for that meeting on that day, in that way. And that's what makes every moment so precious. And you got to make them all count, especially the big ones. Are you enjoying the day-to-day? Meaning, when you look back, do you just have fond memories? Or as you're doing the work, are you very present with the work, really enjoying it? Like, are you in your flow state? I'm totally, in the work? you know, Juven, that's the thing with me. I can't tell you I ever go back to any place unless you bring me back. You brought me back. Yeah. If you didn't bring me back, I'm totally into this moment with you uh-huh. right now. Uh-huh. I'm totally into the day I'm living today. And I have an eye on tomorrow, but I live today. And I'm all in on today. And I think that's really what it's all about. You can't show up and not be present. If you can't be present, don't show up. They have to go hand in hand. Sometimes my team will get mad at me because I probably work too much. They say (laughs) I have no chill. Like I don't know how to step back at all. Has anyone ever told you that? Does Does anyone ever, like do you have a hard time separating from... Not at all. Not at all. You can just detach. I always call this work life. Uh And my work life is my life's work. A lot of people complain about work and family balance and that whole dynamic. No one's ever going to solve that dynamic entirely. And I've never tried because my family knows who I am and how I do it. And digital has actually inspired me to have a better work life because I'm totally present when I'm in real time. If I wasn't connected 
and I wasn't in real time, I wouldn't be totally present. I'd be thinking about what is or isn't getting done. Are my responsibilities being achieved or aren't they? And digital gives us an amazing opportunity to stay connected, but still be present. So I can clear things even when I'm in my family moments. And I can do those highly efficiently. But when I've cleared them, I'm in that moment because I'm up to date, because I'm real time. So we always have to know our strengths and our weaknesses. And I know that if I'm not in real time and I'm not up to date, I'm not at peace. So I find great peace in being up to date and in real time. And my family knows that. But when we're breaking bread and we're doing our thing, I'm not distracted. I'm not talking about what's going on in the office because I'm not in the office and talking about what's going on in the office isn't going to enrich that conversation at that moment. So I am totally present. Do you mind if I ask one more question about your brother? You can ask anything you want. Sure. Um, What did your mom say to you when you lost your brother? Do you remember? Of course. What she said to you? Of course. She said that my brother Jamie is in heaven now and he's an angel and he is watching over us and he will always watch over you. It's incredible. So not gone, just different. When you left Xerox, you were, pick your accolade, you basically had it at Xerox. The youngest corporate officer, you were the youngest manager, you had kind of a historic run there. You took the worst district into the best district. What surprised me was all of the pedigree that you had just built there. Yeah. You only did what was a year at Gartner, I think was the next stop, right? Yeah. Tell me about that time. First of all, Obviously, it wasn't the best choice. It wasn't the best fit, whatever it was. I'm so curious, how did that feel? Like, what was that internal state of, wait a second, this isn't what SAP would go on to feel like, or this isn't what ServiceNow would go on to feel like? It's a very good point. First of all, leaving Xerox, I mean, I can only tell you that it seems like it must have been like going through a really rough divorce. Because when you're really in love with something and you've convinced yourself that you need to change... It's not easy. And uh, leaving the people that I love still to this day and some of my greatest friends for life was the hardest part. Not necessarily changing from, I got to go from one corporation to another, but leaving the friendships that I had built over many years was really hard. And then the other thing that was really hard is my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer literally the day I got my final contract signed with my new employer that day. So two young kids, my sons were really young. My wife has breast cancer. I just gave up a job that I love and I had been there for 17 years because opportunistically I felt that I needed to go on and be the president of another publicly traded company. I felt that it was a great match because of what they needed and what I brought. But the timing literally could not have been worse. So we're moving out of a home in Rochester, New York, on a street that we love with great, greatest friends. I'm leaving all my friends at work. We go. I actually lived in a hotel room for probably about the first month, I would say, until I could get my family relocated 
I never forget this one story. I'm coming from a meeting in Miami into JFK and then on to Connecticut. And it was like the worst rainstorm, windstorm of probably the last 20 years. And my family had just settled into some other hotel room in Connecticut. I get there and literally I could see they're sleeping when I got there. But I saw the look on my wife's eyes when I came in the door. I could see they had been through the ringer, sleeping on couches and things like that. And I just knew it was a really hard move. It was a tough one. We were dealing with a lot of things. The next day, I literally hadn't even unpacked. I just throw on my suit. And I'm on this hill coming out of the hotel. And like it was one of those, you know, neighborhood hotel type things with just a huge hill. I slipped in my suit and I was like covered in mud from like my shoulder all the way through to my shoes. I get in this diner to get my family some breakfast and bring it back like a really highly emotional thing. And it underscored the whole experience, by the way. And literally, I saw this young woman with her children look at me with the suit covered in mud as if to say, like, this guy looks like Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places, man. Like, please avoid this man. And I get the egg sandwiches. I take it back to the room. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is really going to be a beauty. So I fought change. I fought the job change. We fought cancer, thank God, and won. The kids had to adjust to new schools and all that. And I actually think that it was a great experience in the sense that was it the happiest experience I've had? No. Was it one of the toughest moments of my life? And I missed a lot of things about Xerox. And I missed a lot of things about what I did, which was much more, you know, about the product or the solution that was really like running a business. Gartner was a fabulous company. And I love my experience at Gartner. It was very much on the IT research and advisory services, which is fantastic. And I learned a lot. And I left because I had another opportunity to go to that was more suitable for me. And at that time, it was like a reawakening because we got to move out of Connecticut, we got to go to California, and we got to go to a software company. And I really felt like it was a beautiful change for me and my family. So I have no regrets. And I think that's one of the things that people really should think about. Not every single one is going to work out perfectly whether it's the company isn't a match, the culture isn't a match, the timing is off because there's family circumstances that are far-reaching. There's a lot of different things. But in every experience, you give it everything you've got, you learn from it, you grow from it, and you have to have trust and faith that there's a reason that you go through this experience that will serve you down the road. And that's the most important lesson of all that there is no experience that's a bad experience. There is only a bad experience if you didn't learn, if you didn't grow, and you didn't expand your ability to confront problems, dangers, pain, and then become more because of it. If you forfeit that opportunity, that's on you. Bill, when you found out that Julie had breast cancer and you signed the offer the same day, yeah. what was your instinct? Meaning, what did you do? Do you go into problem-solving mode? The offer had been signed. You give your word. There's no turning back. You couldn't? Well, I could. Yeah. I could. But then that brings on a whole nother set of complications where now you're saying, you know, your word is not great. 
So we both agreed, not just me unilaterally, Julie and I both agreed that an agreement is agreement, a commitment's a commitment, this is a challenge, and it's not one that either one of us wanted. We knew that things were going to get a lot tougher before they got easier, but we took it on as a team, and that's how it rolled. And this is another beautiful part of the Gartner story, and I love the Gartner story, actually, for a lot of reasons. But I love it especially for this reason, which is Julie benefited greatly from living in Connecticut, being in the New York area, and having Sloan Kettering, which is the number one institution in the world, really, for treating these cancer challenges. The dreaded breast cancer disease is something that's taken a lot of lives. And fortunately, because we were there, we had access to the best health care. She had a great experience there. I got to stay with her and rent out my little room where the two of us could get through this thing together. And, you know, recently, Julie and I were in New York. You know, we went to pay our respects to the whole tragedy of 9-11. And the first thing we did together is find out where Michael Judge, Father Michael Judge, where his name was, because we wanted to say a prayer and celebrate him. Because while I was there, you know, I remember... And lots of folks go through lots of challenges, but I just remember being all alone. You know, my mom and dad came to take care of the boys. I was at Sloan Kettering. Julie was in surgery, and I was just walking around the halls. And this lovely priest comes up to me, you know, with those piercing Paul Newman blue eyes. He basically says, hey, what are you in here for? And I said, you know, my wife is going through something. I explained it to him. And I said, well, what are you in here for, Father? And he said, well, I really do stay very close to the New York City Fire Department, and I'm dealing with a personal health care issue with one of my colleagues myself, and I'm here to pray for him. And I said, well, thank you. You know, if you could say a prayer for my wife, I'd appreciate it too. You know, uh, at that point, I'd take all the help I can get. And so anyhow, after um, Julie got out of surgery, they called me to come down. I could come see her in the recovery room. All of a sudden, one of the nurses said to me, uh, by the way, Mr. McDermott, there's a priest who wants to come visit your wife. And I'm like, oh man, are there things they're not telling me? And it was him. And him and I met again at my wife's bedside and we stood over her and he said a prayer, an impassioned prayer within an inch of her face. I'll never forget that. And he had the cross in his hand and he said this impassioned prayer. And when it was over, he asked me to take a walk with him. And he obviously had connections because we went the back way <laughs> through the hospital where nobody else could go. And he knew every corridor. And I said, well, Father, you know, thank you very much. I, I can't believe it. You were so kind. I just met you to come say that prayer for my wife like that. And uh, he said, Bill, I just want to let you know she's going to be fine. And I said, oh, great. Well, how do you know? And he said, Bill, I know. I have friends in high places. She's going to be fine. I promise. And that was, let's say, on a Thursday. By that Sunday night, he had come back again at like 9.30 at night to visit with us. And then he probably stayed till 10.15 or 10.20, something like that. It was an incredible visit. On the way out, I said, Father, you know, if there's anything I can ever do for you, you know, please let me know. And he said, yes, Bill, you can. You can say a prayer for me. Say a prayer that I won't get a drink tonight. 
because I have a problem with that. And seeing a young woman like your wife have to go through something like this really makes me want to have a drink. So say a prayer, I won't. I said, you got a deal. And then years later, Julie wrote a lovely note to Father Michael Judge in the tragedy of his passing when you know he was one of the first that fell at the tragedy of 9-11. And uh, you, know, you might remember the firemen carrying him on the site as he died on the site. And we said that prayer. So had I not made that move, I would have never met Father Michael Judge. Julie would have never been in the great hands of the Sloan Kettering medical professionals. I wouldn't have learned how to get through one of the toughest business changes that anyone could have gone through under these circumstances. I wouldn't have learned everything I learned at Gartner and learned everything there was to know about technology from the best researchers in the world and I wouldn't have been prepared for the road ahead and all the things that were going to come at me if I just stayed in my cozy little comfort zone. Thank you for sharing that. It makes me emotional. Were you always sure? Did you think at all that maybe you were going to stay at Xerox? Or was this Long Island all over again where deep down you knew that there was something else in it for you? In the beginning, my dream was to go all the way and be the CEO that I dreamed of on that train ride when I was 21 years old. At Xerox. At Xerox. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. That was 100% the dream that I was locked and loaded on. Then there comes a time after about 15 years at the time, I just started thinking to myself, I don't really want to waste my time living on one dream in one place, realizing that the world was changing so fast. The internet was just taking off. Digital was the wave of the future. There was such a wide world of things to learn, to explore, to get ready. And I had a strategic choice to make, which was, do you stay with the original dream because it's so deeply embedded in your soul? Or do you take the tough medicine and go for change in the hopes that you can even be more and you'd be more attractive to any CEO job potentially up the road because you know more, you've learned more, and you've gone through more to prepare you. And by the 17th year, I made the decision to make that change. And had I not done that, I wouldn't be here today with you. I might be somewhere else, and that might have also been a great place to be, but that wasn't my destiny. Would it be fair to say that your life's calling is to maximize impact on as many people as you possibly can? I think that's a fair statement. I don't wear that on my sleeve in the sense that, you know, I get up in the morning saying like, our company's 22,000 now. How do I get it to 102,000 as fast as I can? Because I want to make an impact on 102,000. But it is true that I like it when you create something that gives you the ability to help and do good and achieve for the most people possible in whatever forum that is. Again, what I loved about Xerox was that was 100,000 people. I always loved the size and the scale. SAP, when I first started, was probably 10,000 people. When I left, it was over 100,000. I loved the size and the scale. Here, it started at 9,000. We're over 23,000 now. You know, it's quickly becoming the size and the scale. And, you know, what I love about 
the work and being in this privileged position is not just our 23,000 in the ecosystem. People that have their livelihood tied to the ServiceNow platform can be in the millions. Mm -hmm. And it's the millions of people that you can have an impact on that makes me really proud to work with such a great company. So pulling on that thread, I actually think you're going to build the Xerox of our generation. I think you and your team are going to build a canonical defining company here. 80 billion in revenue or market cap. I think we're going to look back and think that there's a lot more value that is going to be built in this place. Let's couch the conversation in maximizing impact for as many people as we want. Can you achieve that outside of business? Like, would you ever do it in politics? Have people asked you all the time? Because you're very presidential. And I mean this sincerely. I don't know if you want to deal with that level of, of headache. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth it. But would you ever consider, like, is there more of a calling for you even beyond the scope of the business world? Or do you think it's confined within work in the traditional sense? I always look at public service as an honorable profession. It's been knocked around pretty good. But I do believe that in public service, there is a deep need for people that have been servant-based leaders in the corporate environments that have created opportunity and goodness for literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Because you know a lot. And you know what great looks like. You also know what really bad looks like. And you just know what to do. There is a difference. Government is a different business. But politically, having been with some of the largest companies in the world and worked through some of the more difficult boardrooms in the world, you understand what it takes to get things done, to get people on the same sheet of music, and to achieve good outcomes. So certainly public service is something that I believe the corporate leaders of the world really really need to think about because the world needs them. So in that context, you never rule out a dream. In terms of what I'm doing here and why it's so important, I came here on a dream. I mean, I chose not after 17 great years and nearly 10 as CEO to renew for another five years. Not because that wasn't a terrific company or I didn't love it because I did. I saw the opportunity to take this one to be the defining enterprise software company of the 21st century. And I had a dream that I wanted to prove that I could take all the things that I had done and team up with a great culture, a great board, a great founder, and great human beings throughout this company and really take it to the next level. And because I understood enough about enterprise software and this particular platform, I knew it could happen. What I didn't know is just how unbelievably right I was. Because you don't always know from the outside. You think you know, but you don't know until you, right. you get. But I was right. You're right. It's pretty obviously right. It's, Thank you. It's pretty amazing. Thank you. My mom is going to watch this. And she's going to ask me, what's with the sunglasses? 100%. And I owe it to her. I owe it to her to give an answer. Can you give well, me a story? Do you mind? Yeah, not at all. So in a certain sense, you have to tell your mom, it's not just because he's too cool for school. Well, um, it is a rock star look with the hair. I do like it. It's not too cool for school. I was in a serious accident in 2015. In that accident, I literally was in a fight for my life. And one of the things that took place is... 
after many surgeries, double-digit numbers of surgeries, I finally had to give in, and I lost my eye. And I got a new one now, so I'm good. <laughs> but that's why I wear the glasses. Yeah. I look back on even that. You know, you say, well, would that be a program you'd volunteer for? No, <laughs> it wouldn't be. But <laughs> what's quite amazing about it all, and this is where I think, like, I'm so happy in my life. It's like I would have never said, yeah, get me online for that injury because I want to prove that I can come back and I want to prove that nothing can slow down the will of a winner who can rise. I want to prove that to the world. I wouldn't have actually signed up for that program. But having been through this, I can tell you that when I look at this world we live in, from the first responders to the incredible healthcare professionals and surgeons that can take a serious case and put somebody back together again, I'll always be in their debt. But one of the stories that your mom might appreciate is that the day that I had to finally give in and I lost my eye permanently, I was in the hospital. My sister Jennifer was with me, my wife and my sons were at school. And, you know, I definitely didn't want to make a big deal out of it because there's no big deal to be made out of it. But I just remember there was a sadness that came over me. I never said anything at the time, but it's true that there was. And most people would say, well, you know, that's pretty devastating. That's the moment where the reality sinks in and that's tough. But the tough part for me was I had lost my mother in 2010 and I felt like I was giving up a piece of my mother. And the only thing I could think of was her. Wow. You had double digit surgeries? Oh yeah, just a whole lot of stuff, but yes, double digit. In fact, the last one, that was the big serious one I'm telling you about, it was amazing because my great executive assistant at that time, Barbara Rendina, put a couple of gentlemen on the phone that were Medal of Honor winners, Michael Thornton and Tommy Norris. And I had met Michael Thornton in Washington at a fundraiser. And at this fundraiser, I had the absolute honor of meeting every living United States Medal of Honor award winner that was still alive at an incredible fundraiser in Washington, D.C. I'll never forget buying a baseball bat. And I believe it was 67 at the time, signing the bat, and then we gave it away to charity, which was super cool. But my point is, I made friends with Michael. And on one of my tougher days, I got that call from Michael and Tommy, Tommy Norris, who was his boss in Vietnam, structurally, and Michael fought off the enemy, got behind enemy lines, saved Tommy. And the reason that Tommy was on the line is because he lost his eye in the battlefield. And Michael Thornton saved his life. And they both won the United States Medal of Honor. So that's pretty big stuff. And what I thought to myself is I started out with a sadness. But as I'm riding back in the SUV with my wife and I get this phone call, just leaving the hospital, I said to myself, 
there's nobody that has my life story. And this is just such an unbelievable thing that these guys would think enough of me to call me at this moment and come in just in time to just give me so much inspiration. And it was great because they were yucking it up pretty good with me. In fact, uh, Tommy told me, he said, Bill, you're never going to pour orange juice very well, so forget it. <laughs> it's going to be all over the place. He said, you're going to be a mess driving a car. He said, forget about going downstairs in a predictable way. And he went through a litany of all the things. You know, I like to shoot hoops and things like that. So all the things that I wouldn't be good at. And we just laughed, you know, the whole time. And then I got off the phone. And before I did, I said to them, I said, you know, I want you to know that you have crystallized what I already knew to be the truth, which is I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And I said to have men who fought for their country and were willing to die for it and die for each other on a day like today, give me a call. How lucky is that? Spectacular. And isn't this at the height of your career at the time? Yeah, no, no question. At the time, I had um, been CEO of SAP, co-CEO yeah. between 2010 and 2014. Yeah. And then I had been named sole CEO in 2014. And this happened in 2015. So I was absolutely in my pinnacle years at SAP. And it was quite an amazing thing because I literally missed the board meeting because this happened on uh, July 1st and the board meeting was going on in Germany right after that. And I called up from the hospital and I basically just told my colleagues, like, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine and I'll be back. When I got back after about a week home, I called up my management team and I called up the board of directors because they were just wrapping up things in Germany. And I said, I just want to let you know that I'm, I'm beyond this business every single step of the way. How's the quarter looking? And by the way, I want you all to know that I'll be at the next board meeting in October. And that's a guarantee. But between now and then, we're not going to slow down one iota. Full speed ahead. We're on it. And I was. I would get a surgery or something in the morning and by the afternoon, I'm back online and doing everything I needed to do. And I was back at that next board meeting. And believe me, I, I could tell I was still pretty raw because, you know, you could see the scarring and things like that. And I was a little worried about it in the beginning because I didn't know how people would receive it, you know, like... Meaning seeing the look? Seeing the... Well, you have sunglasses on yeah. and you could see that, you know, scarring and things like that you know, on your yeah. face and everything, neck and stuff. Glasses pre-brew. Were you insecure about it? I was not insecure about it. I was not certain how people would react to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was it. This is me. You know? yeah. So the question is like, you know, you don't know. Yeah. You just really don't know. And what I learned, and this is the part that actually amazed me, and I did not figure this, is that it was unbelievable how great it was in terms of the reception that people were just thrilled that you were still alive and that you were there and you were doing your thing. And actually, in a certain way, you were doing your thing at an even higher level. Because what happens when you go through something like this? I always had a vision, but in the normal times, I could still see trees. I knew there was like a glistening snow-top mountain behind the trees. 
but I'd have to look through the trees first to see the snow-topped mountain. But after you've survived something like this, there's no trees. Vision is not just what you see. It's how you feel, and it's how you make other people feel. And it's also your ability to just be so human and so in the moment and so not worried about the baby stuff because there's so many big things to conquer. And by far, once I could see the reception was like so wonderful and I was just back and people were glad, everyone's got their thing. And I just feel like maybe in some ways I became more approachable, even though I always felt approachable, but I became more human because they're like, hey, this guy, he bleeds too. He's just like me. And what really opened up is Juven, so many people wanted to tell me their story. My mother went through this, or my father went through that, or I went through the other thing, or my relative. And I literally was dealing with literally thousands of notes. And it just became so human, so interconnected. And even in my peer group, you know, with other CEOs or heads of state and things like that, literally nobody had an issue. And that surprised me. Now, maybe somebody didn't know and was like, you know, is this guy too cool for school showing up in a meeting with glasses on? I don't know. But I can tell you that it hasn't set me back one bit. And it probably gave me, again, something of a superpower that I did not anticipate. Well, and it brings me back, and just to put a bow on this, to this idea that the things that happen in your personal life are deeply intertwined to the things that happen in your professional life. That's kind of the point of this show is that I think that people like you, you're really doing people a service by talking about it. And it means a lot, so I really appreciate it. And I'm really grateful for you doing this. Well, thank you very much for having me, uh, Jubin. And, you know, I think that uh, it's just an honor to be among the leaders of the world that have a chance to make a difference. And, you know, it's, it reminds me of my book, When is Dream. I basically capped the book with an opening quote from Robert Kennedy, and I closed it with a quote from his brother, Ted Kennedy. Robert Kennedy once said, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? And then I capped it off at the end of the book with a quote from his brother, Ted, because he was an interesting figure in this world, and he probably gave his greatest speech in 1976 in defeat when he did not get the nomination to be the Democratic nominee for President of the United States. And in his speech, he said, to all those whose cares are our concern, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream will never die. That's why winners always have to dream. Bill, I'm just saying, you started the book with a politician, you ended the book with a politician. Do me a favor, if it ever happens, we do this again. I'm really, really grateful for you. Oh, before I forget, is ServiceNow hiring? Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? Well, we are hiring. We are hiring a lot of people. We're hiring primarily engineering roles, so people that build software for our once-in-a-generation platform or go-to-market people who care for the customer relationship and can move that relationship in a positive way. Those are our primary categories that we're hiring right now, but we are hiring thousands of people. And ServiceNow is the place to be for people that want to change the world and make this the defining enterprise software company of the 21st century like me. Last one. 
I've asked every single guest this. I can't let you go without asking you, what does the word grit mean to you? Never given up. Never give up. Bill McDermott, thank you. Thank you very much. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. 